This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. And CALCULATE for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com apps. Welcome. You're listening to Back Talk Doc, where you'll find answers to some of the most common questions about back pain and spine health. Brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, where providing personalized, highly skilled, and compassionate spine care has been our specialty for over 75 years. And now, it's time to understand the cause of back pain and learn about options to get you back on track. Here's your Back Talk Doc, Dr. Sanjeev Lakya. When I started the podcast, Back Talk Doc, about two years ago, I had two goals in mind. First, obviously I'm biased, I love where I work, and I wanted to feature all the talents and services we offer at Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, and largely I've done that. We've had great interviews with some of the best surgeons in the entire region and the country talking about things like minimally invasive spine surgery, uh, spinal stenosis. I've been able to interview many of my partners who are physiatrists as well. Uh, where we've talked about regenerative medicine, injections, and we've had multiple episodes on the rehabilitative approach to back pain. So I've been very proud and pleased to offer that uh, to all you listeners out there. My other goal, though, was to try and attract thought leaders in the space of spine care from across the country and the world. And folks, I'm super excited today uh, to say that we are accomplishing that goal in the moment. Today, I'd love to welcome to the show probably the world's most renowned back mechanic, spine uh, biomechanist, Dr. Stuart McGill. Stu, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much, Sanjeev, and uh, a good day to you as John, uh, to John as well. Yes, and also uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. John Lesher, is joining us for a conversation today. Um, originally, Stu, when we talked, we're kind of tiling this uh, show, uh, Fact or Fiction, regarding uh, spine care and uh, back pain, but I have a feeling uh, with three spine nerds like us, this could go in any direction. But I want to introduce you to the listeners. Uh, You are, I'm not understating, you're you're literally a living legend in the field of back rehabilitation, Uh, particularly when I mentioned to the physical therapy team in our group, everyone was really pleased to hear that you volunteered some time to speak with us. But for those potential patients out there or just uh, people who aren't familiar with you, I'm going to take a brief moment and kind of go over your background. So Dr. McGill is a distinguished professor emeritus, spine biomechanics at the University of Waterloo. He's a professor there for 30 years and explored low back mechanics of both intact humans, both normal and injured people, and harvested tissues where specific injuries are created and analyzed. He's been the author of many scientific journal papers. Uh, Last I recall, um, almost 200 peer-reviewed published articles, maybe more. He's mentored uh, over 40 graduate students. And his work has received several international awards, including the Volvo Bioengineering Award for Low Back Pain Research in 1986, and most recently, the Order of Canada. As a consultant, he's provided expertise on low back injury to various government agencies, many corporations and legal firms, professional and international athletes, and teams worldwide. And Dr. McGill is regularly referred 
special patient cases from the international medical community for opinion. So folks, he's an expert. He's also an author, and I've been deep diving into his work. So the first one I have here is, you know, with my green screen here, how that's going to show up, Back Mechanic. And this is a fabulous book put together. Actually, I wasn't aware of it until John mentioned it to me to take a look at for my own back, and it's been a wonderful resource. Other ones, Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance. Then I also have Low Back Disorders, Evidence-Based Prevention and Rehab in my physical therapy team provided that for me. So they are definitely heavy, heavy into your work. He sat on numerous editorial boards uh, for journals like the Journal Spine, Clinical Biomechanics, and Journal of Applied Biomechanics. Like I said, an author. He's also uh, put together the book Gift of Injury, which is a very, very interesting read. And he is a, a married gentleman with two children and lives in Ontario. And really just an authority in the world of back pain. Uh, Stu, did I leave anything out that you think people should know about you? I was thinking of a very smart answer that you might have to censor, so we won't start off that way. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, but really, you know, it's you've dedicated your life. I mean, you're literally, this is your focus. And it's so appreciated for those of us in clinical medicine that there are people who have put in the work in the laboratory. And one of the things on this podcast, I've been able to bring in all different types of angles and approaches uh, to how you treat back pain. And what you really add in terms of a value add to the show is the scientific background and how you've literally investigated a lot of the, the thoughts about the way things should be and, and put evidence behind them or, or kind of disproven them. And it's very much appreciated because in the world of back pain, it can be a black box. I guess it's like we can go down pathways and not get the results we're looking for. You know, I, I think the question I want to lead off with uh, in our fact versus fiction, before we get into that, I want to let John, I think he's got a very good question. And we were talking about it before you came on, referencing how you kind of made a decision to get in this clinical space. So John, I'll, I'll let you lead with that question as an opening question for Dr. McGill. Sure. Thanks, Sanjeev. Um, I was just basically really interested in how or or was there a, a sentinel event or something that went on in your early career or life where you said, gosh, the studies that I'm doing and the research that I'm doing, I need to apply this directly more to uh, patients uh, to help in their assessment and then guide them through the rehab journey. So just curious, was there, was there a spark that really got that going uh, in your career? Yes and no. Th this might surprise you. I never intended to become this clinician aberration that I am. I never intended to see patients. I was a scientist and started off in the laboratory just asking a simple question. How does the spine work? And that was it. And I would be invited to orthopedic meetings or neurology meetings. And the medics would approach me afterwards and say, what you just showed in terms of mechanism is something that we haven't thought about, would you see a patient with us? That's being a bit difficult right now, a challenge for us. And I said, no, I'm not a clinician. And they said, don't worry, we are, but we would like you to come and see this patient and, and show us what you see. So that was the start of that. And very reluctantly, I, I went, but I realized not having gone through the traditional medical school training, although, you know, I, I took all the engineering courses and, and quite a number. I'm obviously medical anatomy and physiology and those kinds of things, but I hadn't been through the clinical 
realm. In other words, here's how you conduct a back assessment and you have 15 minutes. And then in another 15, you're going to see the next patient. I didn't have any of that. So the next seminal event was the dean came to me and said, I'd like you to start an experimental research clinic here at the university. Well, I didn't, I wasn't familiar with the 15 minute model. I asked the question, how long do I need to be with a patient to understand the mechanism of their pain, why they're in pain, what's missing? And I decided, I think I need two hours to see a patient to start that process. I have to listen to them and understand what are all the impediments that have prevented them from getting better with all of the other clinicians that they've seen? Because if I don't deal with that right off the bat, I will fail too. And then listening to their story, I would generate hypotheses. Hmm, I think I could test that. I could test this and test this to, to prove and, and manipulate things and, and get insights into these various pathways. And then I needed a little bit of time to try it with them. Can I immediately modulate their pain? Can I make it worse? Can I make it better? And probe it. Do you know, John, after the first year, I ch- and by the way, when we started that, my medical colleagues said, two hours, what are you going to do with a patient for two hours? By the end of the first year, we changed that to three hours. And I still, to this day, book three hours to see a patient to really understand the mechanism of their pain and get an understanding of how we're going to organize a strategy to address it. So those are two seminal events, I guess, to use your words. And, uh, but never did I ever think 30 years ago, I would be a clinician. Great. Wow. I mean, that speaks to, you know, if someone as well studied researched as you and you're speaking to a two to three hour evaluation i think that just really illustrates for people how complex things can be and even more than that how important it is to listen to someone's story when they come in with back pain versus a cookie cutter approach and john and i do get 15 minutes to evaluate a patient and make a determination about how to positively influence their trajectory with their back uh, so what you do as a you know, as a physician is we break up that two-hour evaluation over subsequent multiple visits and at least try and get the ball rolling in the positive direction and then have, you know, we're fortunate in our group in the Carolinas, we have numerous uh, physical therapists who are very well educated. A lot of them follow your teachings and your methods about evaluation and looking at spine triggers and things like that. So that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. I wasn't aware of that's kind of how you got, you kind of got Pulled, pulled into it, whether you wanted to or not. Right. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. All right. So today's topic, we're going to do fact versus fiction. I thought this was a great kind of way to shape this. I did this sort of paradigm a few episodes ago with one of my partners about lumbar epidural injections. And going through your back mechanic books, do one thing I will say is you are not afraid to take a position. And, and I like that. <laughs> right. I, I like that. And, and typically, I think the reason you're not afraid is because you've done the work. You've done the work and the research to back it up. So the first question as we kind of hit this off is, and I'm trying to, I'm going to try and go through some topics that are not necessarily hot topics, but there's some debate out there and there's going to be people who would conflict with what, what we may or may not say, but let's get right to it. Fact versus fiction. Number one, most back pain is a result of herniated lumbar discs. I 
would say most back pain of the people who you are seeing in your clinic and they're it's disabling pain yes efficient to miss work for example i wouldn't say herniated discs but i would say certainly the majority of them have disc disruption which changes the mechanics of the joint offload stress from some tissues onto others uh, and uh, the rest of it. So sorry about that. That's fine. You can spot the professor. I know what you're thinking. Uh But uh, in any case, so disc uh, derangement, I would say, is involved in the majority. But you know, Sanjeev, the, the assessment, if it's thorough enough, will always give you the answer. So if you were to start with what activities cause the pain and what activities take the pain away. And then let's just do a little bit of pattern recognition at the base level. If someone said to you, you know, sitting at the computer for 20 minutes really ramps up my pain. But if I go for a fast walk for 15 minutes, my pain goes away. All right. There is a very discogenic type of pattern, but then the person comes in. uh, The next one is 65 years of age and they give you exactly the opposite pattern. They say, you know, Going for a walk for 15 minutes, I have to sit down to get back pain mm-hmm. relief. So we're out of the discogenic joint instability phase. And now the, the joint is stiffened. It's got a bit gnarly with some uh, arthritic bone growth and whatnot, and, and more into the stenotic categories that you mentioned earlier. And, and so those very simple patterns, putting them together, would you say that the disc is still part of the pain? Well, it might be. And it certainly was 30 years prior in that person's life, but now their patterns have changed. So there you go. We would then do provocative testing. We would apply loads in compression, in shear, in bending, in torsion, tension, and see what exacerbates their pain or takes their pain away. Specific postures. Sit in a chair upright. Does this cause your pain? And let's say the person says, no, good, slouch. Oh, yeah, there's my familiar pain. And not only that, my right great toe just started to buzz a little bit. All right. Well, we're we're starting to slice and dice down here. So the next pass is to become actually tissue specific. Let's load that particular tissue. Off camera, we were talking about uh, spondylolisthesis and not to preempt that discussion. But again, there's a pattern to those kinds of patients we put together to come up not only an activity-based diagnosis and understanding of their pain mechanism, but now we get to actual tissues. So anyway, that would be the mechanical approach that would lead us to understanding whether it is a disc herniation and what type or subcategory of herniation it is, or are we far down the cascade? Yeah, that's great. And I kind of started off with that question because I wanted people listening to get a little bit of insight into how you organize your evaluation. And the other piece of it is we all know that there's a certain degree of degenerative disc changes that are associated with aging. And you look at research studies that show a certain percentage of the population is going to have, quote unquote, an abnormal MRI and may not have symptoms. But I have felt as I go along in my career, there were times where I feel like I might overinterpret that sort of information and other times underinterpret it. And what you're talking about, it sounds like, is you know, you look at the whole person. You know, as an osteopath, that's kind of how we looked at things in medical school was looking at alignment and movement patterns and such. And then I kind of got away from it. 
you know, we like to say we treat patients, not MRIs. And I think what you might be saying is that we treat patients and we really understand their MRI and try and figure out mechanistically what's going on. John, is that kind of how you look at things to when you're doing your evaluations with people and interpreting their MRIs? Yes, it's much more of a comprehensive approach. And just actually, Dr. McGill, I'm always impressed when I read or listen to some of your work how you interpret MRIs and how um, you will pick up on things that are not at all discussed by the radiologist. But if you know the clinical background of their pain, the, the findings really give you a much colorful and comprehensive picture of what's going on. Yes. Did you want to comment about that, John? Just with regards to just, for example, Schmorl's nodes in certain parts of the spine or uh, anterior aspects of the end plates, um, really are not commonly discussed by um, radiologists, but then you you know you listen to a person's uh, history, and you know they're a they're, they're a, uh, a weightlifter who's loading their back repeatedly uh, with heavy loads, or they're in a manual labor task where they're doing a lot of forward flexion with a sledgehammer or heavy equipment, and then you're saying, well, gosh, there could be something there based on this, based on what you're doing regularly. Yes. I get a little bit disturbed when I see a clinician, and even before they've seen the patient walk in the door, they have the MRIs up on the screen, and they've decided whether they're going to intervene. And yet, the sclerotic bone that they might be seeing or the end plate fractures, in comes the world champion powerlifter or the world's strongest man. Those sclerotic changes are adaptations to heavy load. It's a good thing. <laughs> and, and, you know, Sanjeev, to your point, talking about degenerative discs and you follow a person through their cascade, the more degenerated some people get, the less pain they have because the pain wasn't the degenerated disc. The pain was when the disc started to first lose its turgor. Now the person was getting uh, micro movement. So if I could take if I may take a pelvis with three lumbar discs visible here, there's L5, L4, and L3. L3 and 5 are normal. L4 has now started the degenerative cascade. It's lost its stiffness, just like a knee that has strained knee ligaments. It's lost its uh, stiffness. And if you do a drawer test, you will get laxity instability. So let's do the equivalent of a drawer test on a spine. L4, as I've already said, has lost its stiffness. I'm just going to apply a torque. Do you see where the majority of the motion is occurring? It's at the unstable joint. Now on MR, it might, might look perfect. And you would never see that instability until you did an instability test, or perhaps you could do some radiological stills, you know, a full flexion, full extension, or whatever it happens to be. But um, anyway, over time, and, and look at the work that the facets are, are experiencing at that level of L4, L5, not at L4. So when you see the gnarly facets four or five years later at only one level, uh, that was because of the micro movements that were occurring due to that original loss of disc uh, turgor through injury or damage. None of that's visible on the MR. And over time, that joint will get a little bit gristly and gnarly. And so the radiologist is very concerned about a degenerative change at that level. In 10 years, the pain from that level, it's all gone. That's the worst looking joint. 
you know, we see this in whiplash patients uh, as, as well through uh, video fluoroscopy. Uh, the joint that looks normal, the person will take their neck through the range of motion and all of a sudden, somewhere in the mid-range, C5 on C6 might have a heavy shear translation and the person goes, ah, and then keeps on going. The pain was associated with a micro movement invisible on the MR. Now, that's a great point. And it's interesting. It occurs to me, many of our uh, neurospine surgeons will have a suspicion or intuition that a patient has instability in their low back. And from a kind of a uh, insurance model, there's certain criteria you have to meet to, for the patient to be appropriately approved for the surgery. And we have limitations. So what you just illustrated, you know, we can image in a sagittal plane and look for spinal instability. We have actually have one of the few groups that has a FlexX MRI um, but of course you can do dynamic plane films, but that's just one plane of movement. And really putting that model up on the screen was awesome. I mean, it, it shows how micro movements can occur in any direction and be a pain trigger. Now, I know that jumping to lumbar fusion is probably not the first thing that comes to your mind. And it kind of feeds into my second uh, fact versus fiction kind of statement or question for you, Dr. McGill. Uh, fact versus fiction Number two, most back pain is lifelong regardless of treatment. Fiction, usually. Uh, it's very difficult for me to be absolute on anything, and I don't mean to avoid the question, but we're dealing with people, and, and that's, that's the truth. So I'm going to say fiction usually. When I ran the experimental clinic, we followed up with every patient that we ever saw in the history of the clinic. I don't know of another clinic in the world that has done that. And of course, we had failures, but what we did do was we ran with the idea there's no such thing as nonspecific pain. It's all very specific. And when we subcategorized people, we would then, through the follow-up, learn who got better and who didn't. Did they comply? Did they do what we asked them to do. What was it that we gave them to do? Was there a match between uh, that? What test results did we have? In other words, I can now better answer your question on, is the pain going to have the likelihood of being lifelong or not? If one more statement, every patient that we saw at the experimental clinic was a failure. No one said, oh, I've got fresh back pain. We're going to go off to the experimental clinic. We got the people who'd already seen at least 10 different clinicians and they had failed. So right now, their clinical success ejection was zero. So let's, that's where we're starting from. They have zero chance of getting better and they are your lifelong patients. Would you believe that if they were told you've tried everything, you've been to the osteopath, the physio, the physiatrist, you've been to the pain clinic, you've done cognitive behavioral therapy, et cetera, you've, you've done it all. And the last option for you is surgery. If that was your subcategory and you followed the program that we gave to wind down your pain sensitivity through spine hygiene and moving with competency according to your triggers, et cetera. Build a foundation to move with proximal stability and appropriate mobility throughout the linkage, etc. Following the philosophy, in a two-year follow-up, 95% reported that they were glad that they never had the surgery. So there's a statistic there. That's an impressive one. 
but now I can get into the less impressive categories. If a patient was categorized with flexion intolerance, so remember the person will just have the sitting test, they sit upright, and they say, no, I don't really have any symptoms, sit slouch, oh yeah, there are my symptoms. So there is a test for flexion intolerance. T8% of them in the two-year follow-up reported excellent outcome, meaning that they needed no further intervention and they were happy with their lives. So that's less than half. If the person said, uh, or, or was categorized with flexion plus compression intolerance. Compression intolerance is a tough one because there's not too much rehab you can do in terms of adapting your tissues with a load stimulus. We're down to a 33% within two years chance of them saying, oh, I, I, we're, I'm very fine uh, it, with life. But if they had flexion and extension motion intolerance, they had an 80% success rate in saying that I, we, I had an excellent outcome. I don't need any further intervention. So those were the people attending our clinic. Now I go into the athletic cases because, as you're aware, that to this day, I still our subspecialty, I suppose, is dealing with world-class athletes, people who push their bodies to the nth degree. I can name many world records players who are marquee players in your professional leagues, the NFL, the NBA, the UFC, the Fight League, NHL hockey, who have now come back and are playing at previous levels or even better levels, proving that their pain and disability, sufficient for them to lose millions of dollars in salary and all the rest of it, that they got back to uh, set world records or play their professional sport again. So it's not a lifelong sentence, but of course, it's context and case specific. If you've been in a car wreck and heavily compromised and a surgeon has really had to be magical to get you back together, you know, the chance that you're going to be back powerlifting again is, is not very high. So of course, it's, it's case specific, but there's a little bit of, I hope, encouragement for listeners. Yeah, exactly. And I would say for those listeners out there who, before you try and slam Dr. McGill or us for saying all back pain 100% of the time can be cured, I think what you're really trying to say is with a a purposeful, systematic approach, most maybe non-malignant back pain has an opportunity to improve. And you've definitely done some research and data to document some outcomes, which are encouraging. But it does lead me to my next question in terms of surgery. So if Fact versus fiction, back pain with radiculopathy. So for laymen, that's, uh, let's say, pain radiating down your leg with some associated weakness. Maybe you can't get your toes up. Numbness uh, is a clear indication for surgery. And I'll, I'll bring that specific question up because in our world, in the medical spine world, that is, at least for physiatrists, that's when our, our alarm bell goes off and we're thinking much more about do we need to get our neurosurgical colleagues involved? And I know the devil's in the details for sure, but John, you agree that's when you see a patient that comes in who has some motor weakness in their leg and it's associated with numbness and intractable pain, that your awareness level is a little bit higher about whether or not the patient needs surgery? Yes, um, especially if it's progressing or moving pretty quickly. So I want to get your thoughts, Dr. McGill, and this may not be a 
I mean, as all of these, these aren't black and white answers. There's a lot of uh, context that needs to be involved and, and so forth. But we'd love to hear your thoughts on that type of situation. Very rarely do we jump to that conclusion quickly. We almost always run an experiment, and the experiment is called virtual surgery. So we perform some tests, and we create the radiation that you're describing, whether it's a numbness down a specific neural tract, whether it's mechanical crosstalk and tension from one nerve to another, or, or is it, is it a, an open fissure disc bulge? If it's an open fissure disc bulge, uh, no. Do virtual surgery first. Prove to the patient that if they sit like this at the computer for four hours, chances are that pressure from that specific disc bulge on that specific nerve root is going to get worse and worse and worse. But if we teach them, well, maybe we have to do a hip exam. And we learn from the hip exam that when they turn the pelvis, now I'm flexing the hips and they have a, a, an anatomy to their hip sockets that causes them to back off the hip impingement and they're right back into the hydraulic pressure to increase the size of the disc bulge. Spread your knees apart. Get your feet underneath you. Ah, that took the pressure off the hips. Now I can sit with it in, in that position more comfortably. Now, every uh, hour, stand up, reach for the ceiling, and twice a day, lay on your tummy for five minutes. Do not do a McKenzie prone push-up. Just lay and breathe and relax your back. Does that take the numbness out of your foot? And if they come back in a week and say, you know, uh, those, those radiating symptoms are starting to disappear. Fabulous. Let's keep it going. So my point is, and I should say that this works very well for patients who, we, let's say they are exercise addicts. Let me paint a picture here. A stay-at-home mom, okay. two young kids, comes in and says, you know, I have to go to the gym every day and ride the elliptical for 45 minutes. Otherwise, I'm stressed out and I, you know, I'm going to murder my husband and my kids. And, and uh, I'll say, good, we'll go have the surgery then. But you do realize that tomorrow, if you have the surgery, you're going to lay in bed and you're going to get up and go for a pee and you're going to go and lay down in bed again. And you're going to progressively reintegrate movements and all the rest of it. But if you go right back to the same patterns, you have a great chance of re-herniating. So you are going to have to change the way that you move, become more efficient in, in purposefully stimulating the adaption that you need in your body to become robust again. Why don't we do it now? Let's perform virtual surgery. And I'm very dramatic about it. I'll say, you know, I'm like, I'm knighting you. <laughs> there you are. You've had your virtual surgery. Now behave like a post-surgical patient. And that, when I said that 95% figure, that's where that came from. Performing virtual surgery works 95% of the time. If they fit the category of they haven't been traumatized, there's no heavy tissue damage from impact or, do you know what I mean? Or, you know, we're not yeah. dealing with anything that's a red flag. Let me clarify. So when you're saying virtual surgery, are you essentially implying rest and gentle modification for a period of time? I'm suggesting that they behave like a post-surgical patient starting now. Okay. So we show them the cause of their pain mechanically, and, and our assessment will show that and reveal it to them. Then we coach them 
on if this is how they get out of the chair and they have, we'll just use that posterior open fissure disc bulge subcategory of patient. If their first movement is into even more flexion to get out of the chair and no one showed them that if they spread their knees, get their feet underneath them, suck a little bit of air, lead with the chest, flex through the hips and pull the hips through. Ah, now I've just stopped. I've arrested the hydraulic effort that causes the disc bulge to grow. Would you like to see another model of this? I can show you with precision if you like. Yes, that'd be fabulous because okay. that's a big me- that's our big common mechanism of pain. All right. These are all made by dynamic disc designs which I have no business uh relationship with. I will point that out. However, they have based a lot of these models on our work over the years that we've documented. So let's look into the disc from the top here, and we see the nuclear gel and the collagenous fibers forming the fabric of the disc. Not, it's not a ball and socket joint. It is actually a fabric. Now, if I wanted to delaminate the fibers of my shirt, which is a fabric, I would create stress-strain reversals back and forth, and the fibers would delaminate and create a tear. So the disc has to have some delamination so the fibers pull apart and then the pressurized nucleus will work its way under great pressure through the delaminations. So that's typically caused by a combination of flexion movement plus load. If you just have flexion movement, no real issue. Uh, Belly dancers, for example, can do all kinds of gyrations, but they're not under load and they adapt a very mobile annulus and ground substance structure in the collagen fibers, but they don't herniate. But it's not the spine you want to put a lot of load on Mm -hmm. because of the laxity. In any case, I'm now going to show that there has been a delamination that's occurred. And this is exactly what you would see in a surgical case, bloody invagination, a growth of, of nerve endings, and Uh, vascular structures along the delamination. So now we have a posterior lateral delamination, and you can see it as a red mark at the end of my finger there. So now I'm going to squeeze the spine to simulate compression. I'm compressing the incompressible hydraulic fluid of the nucleus, and I'm going to allow it to flex forward. Watch the fissured site, and I'm going to squeeze And I'm going to drive the hydraulic pressure posteriorly. And now you see the disc bulge. Mm -hmm. There is the nerve root. So now I can see when I put them into a all fours position, I rock them back. And now I'm going to pull their head down. I'm going to pull the, the nerve roots up. Watch this nerve root under my thumb. I pull it right into the offense. Do you see it moving right here? Yeah. And then I might straighten the leg and pull it the other way. So I can tell exactly whether that disc bulge is overhooking or underhooking the uh, disc bulge. That will correlate almost all the time with the antalgic lean that you see in the disc herniation pattern. They will be leaning away, but it doesn't predict the side. It predicts whether the, der- the, the disc is under or overhooking uh, the nerve root. And then the neurodynamic tests as you're migrating the spinal cord cranially and caudally, you will figure out with great precision a lot about that mechanic. Now, what's the antidote? Now we're going to squeeze the spine, but I'm not going to allow it to flex. In other words, I'm creating a equal hydraulic pressure on the wall of the annulus. Watch, the whole disc is going to squeeze down. 
Yes. Yep. Nothing comes out posteriorly. So it's as simple as if I had an orange seed, being Carolina boys, uh, you're a little north of the orange groves. But anyway, you know what I mean. If you squeeze an orange seed and I want to squeeze it out that way, I had to bias the pressure and out it goes every single time. But I lock it in place as I drive the hydraulic pressure straight down through the middle. So it's hydraulics. And if I can get out of the chair now, not going into that flexion hydraulic pressure driver to the open fissure, but I, you, you follow what I yes. uh, did in that coaching of the patient. Now pull the hip, hips through and, you know, typically that person will say, you know, I get relief when I, when I go for a walk. I get relief even when I carry my groceries. No kidding. Yeah. I, I really love the, the cue you have for them to sniff. Like, and when you do that, you can feel some core activation there. Is that, is that what you're trying to do? Several things. Neurologically, it is a... People become so victimized and they have despair from their pain. You know the person who comes into their office, no one comes in and say, hey, doc, I've got back pain. No, that's never an extensor proud pattern. It's defeated. They're beaten. I've got back pain. Feeding the flexion hydraulics to make the posterior fissure that I just showed you grow even more. Mm. Who owns the world? And, you know, these are all just little psychological games that we'll play. And they'll say, well, what do you mean? And I said, I've just shown you that you can now reduce the pressure. You can reduce the numbness of your feet by planking on the wall and allowing your hips to drift towards the wall. Now, stand tall and you own the world. You're now in control. Swing your arms from the shoulders, get a little bit of natural nerve flossing going. And that sniff is a little bit of, I own the world a little bit. So that's the start of the psychological empowerment that they now have some control over their their back pain. It also stacks the mass. So mechanically, we can palpate the person's erector spinae, and you will find that they're taut. They're compressing chronically their back pain. They might have a compartment syndrome in the fascia with the muscle, just chronic muscular pain when they move. It's sharp pain. But then if we can get them to stack their mass, they can feel those muscles just shut down. We didn't give them a dose of methocarbamol or muscle relaxants. We simply got them to stand. So the sniff might feed that posture as well. It does a lot of things. Your statement of it then activates the core muscles, which form a guy wire system to stiffen the rod. So this micro movement that I showed you earlier, yes, we have a loss of control. The body uses stiffness and joint stiffness to control movement. It has now lost its control, but we make up for that by adding a little bit of muscular bracing with the core muscles as you do very well. So do you see the sniff does many things? Yeah, this is great. And I honestly don't even remember the question anymore. I'm just so engaged with what you're talking about. It's awesome. This is a great, you know, these models are phenomenal. They are. Yeah. They are so empowering for a patient to transition from, okay, you know, there's this movement in therapy now 
don't always tell the patient the truth. Keep encouraging them that their back isn't fragile, they're going to be okay, and we don't do that. We show the person what their particular pain pathway is, and then give them enough education or wherewithal that they can now control it and create the adaptations to to get some robustness back. And you know, Sanjeev, so many of them say, thank you. You're the first person, the first doc who hasn't treated us like a five-year-old. We get it. Awesome. And you know, the person might be a car mechanic. If I show them a lever arm or if I'm going to pull on a door, I'm going to pull a door and I'll say, did you ever play basketball in high school? Good. Show me a drop step. You're boxing out Shaq O'Neal. They know what a drop step is. Good. Grab the door. And now you're pulling the force vector right through your spine. But drop step. Take a step back. Oh, doc, I just opened up the heavy steel door for the first time without any back pain. They're a car mechanic. They understand. <laughs> yeah. And I'll, I'll just take a moment here to, to plug your back mechanic book. And for those who want to pick up a copy, he, you also offer with the accompanying videos, which I did, and they're excellent. And you go over a lot of these things. You know, Dr. McGill's covering a lot of his concepts uh, in a fairly quick manner right now. But if, if you want to take a deeper dive, and we'll link to, the, um, we'll link to his books in the show notes uh, for the podcast and the, um, the videos on YouTube. You just touched a little bit on the corona segue into uh, this concept, kind of fact versus fiction here, Dr. McGill. A strong core is more important than back and leg flexibility in preventing back injuries. And specifically what I'm getting at with this question here, number one is I want to open the door for you to discuss and share with people who aren't familiar with your big three. And then I also want your opinion on the idea of particularly the hamstrings, because A lot of people uh, are told they have very tight hamstrings and that if your hamstrings are locked, it'll create a flexion moment about the L5-S1 disc when you try and and hip hinge and you just can't do it. So hamstring stretching is an integral part of rehabilitative exercise programs for lower lumbar disc herniation. So a couple of points there that I want to pick your brain on. Well, there's so much to unpack there. I'll try and be efficient. First, the assessment shows whether they have tight hamstrings or tight sciatic nerves, mimicking and being perceived by the patient as a tight hamstring. I would say that more often than not, it is the tight nerve. Mm. Don't stretch a tight sciatic nerve. It will become even tighter. So here's a person who comes into the office and they say, well, I've been working on my hamstrings. I've been stretching them for for a year. I haven't gotten any better. Oh, good. Let's do some neurodynamic testing on that nerve. And we're also going to, you know, the expertise that we put into a straight leg raise. We palpate the two heads of hamstrings. We raise the leg and we feel where the muscles become engaged. But if they say, oh, no, I'm tight and you can clearly palpate the muscles aren't tight yet. And now get your finger right up into the uh, popliteal fossa and really play guitar strings on the sciatic nerve. And they'll say, oh, yeah, that's, that's causing my back pain. Son, you have a tight sciatic nerve. You do not have tight hamstrings. So please stop stretching them. And what we're going to do now is try some nerve mobilization. Once we've figured out what it is that's causing the tight nerve, whether it's a disc bulge or an arthritic bone spur or a tarloff cyst or whatever the case may be. 
So there's a little bit of a start on the hamstrings. Now, the next thing is, is on the performance side. Do you think Michael Jordan has tight or loose hamstrings? Oh, I guess it's tight. Yeah. But look at every leaper in the NBA. Yeah. That's the spring that they jump off. Wow. I've measured quite a number of them. So be careful now how much you want to slacken off a hamstring. But let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum. There are those people with pathologically tight hamstrings, and they create the syndrome exactly as you described. It is so tight, it bends the pelvis, which bosses the spine into flexion and uh, stresses to the point where it is the cause of their back pain. So, you know, again, the, the answer is it depends, but the assessment always shows you the way forward on how to approach this perceived tight hamstring idea. That's great. John, I want to let you jump in. I don't want to hog all of his attention. Do you have anything to offer on that or any questions that are coming to your mind? No, as far as the assessment on, on that, I, I commonly see the same thing. It's, is this a muscle issue or is it a nerve issue? One of the things I was going to kind of piggybacks onto the question is just flexibility. And generally, and this is a, a generalization I'll see in my clinic, my female patients want to become more flexible where they need more stability. And it's my male patients who want to get stiffer or stronger where they may need a little bit more mobility. So Dr. McGill, I was just curious if you see patterns like that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a, uh, uh, you've been in the clinic, you spent your time. I, I see that there are some people who say, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to yoga class to deal with my back pain. Now it may be that some of the asanas and yoga are wonderful for them, but it may be that the very next one is creating more laxity when it's the micro movements that's causing their pain. And what they're doing is they'll, they'll get a 20 minute jolly. They fired a stretch reflex. Feels good for 20 minutes. But then an hour later, they've got the same feeling back. Oh, I think I better pull my knees to my chest again or whatever it happens to be. And we'll say, yeah. stop all that. And we're going to give you a replacing alternative. Every time you want to pull your knees to your chest, I suggest you lay on your tummy on the floor and take 10 deep breaths. Now tell me how you are after three days. And you know what the result of that is. Surprisingly to them, sometimes for the first time now, they say, you know, I can sit a little bit longer before my toes go numb or whatever the case may be. But tuning of the body to make it resilient. If the person is really training to be more mobile. Terrific. Great. And, and they love going to the yoga studio and, and whatnot. I, I'm going to give a plug for a friend right now. I have a friend who's a yogi, Bernie Clark. Bernie Clark wrote a series of books. One was called Your Body, Your Yoga. Another one was called Your Spine, Your Yoga. And he guides the teachers and the students through self-assessments of their anatomy and their mechanics to determine how they're going to do certain yoga asanas or poses to create the desired effect of resilience and performance and not more pain. You follow the logic. And, and people are, are all different, as, as you know. You know, you look at the shape of hip sockets, which are, yes, you got them from your parents, but if you look at the shape of hip sockets around the world and the incidence of orthopedic disease based on that hip socket, 
it follows haplogroups and genetic groups. For example, where's the highest rate of FAI in Caucasian Europe? It's the Celtic nations. It's the Irish and the Scots who have the highest rate of FAI. They've got the congenitally deepest hip sockets picking things up off the floor. And I'm not saying every Irishman has a deep hip socket. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying the population average. What's the polar opposite in an orthopedic incidence sense of FAI and deep hip sockets? Well, it's the dysplastic hip, hip dysplasia. Where's the highest rate of hip dysplasia across Caucasian Europe? I'm not talking about Asia because that that has a different distribution of pools within it. The epicenter is Poland. The highest rate of hip dysplasia, who has the shallowest hip sockets? It's the poles. Where do the Olympic lifters come from? People who have to deep squat with weight over their head. So you're starting to see form and function here a little bit. Now, I'm not saying every pole has a dysplastic hip, not at all. I'm just saying it is evidence to link different characteristics of joints with function, tolerance, ability. So there are some people who are made for yoga and they're not made to be on a powerlifting platform and vice versa. So now we get into recognizing these different types and feeding their bodies with the appropriate distribution of mobility and flexibility and stiffness and control and load bearing. So if I took a spine, which if you took a spine out of you and we just had this osteoligamentous spine and I put it on a table, it would collapse with about five pounds. That's all your spine will take. Now, this spine has some load-bearing ability because I've added stiffness. I've put a wire rod up the middle to give it compression. Now I'm going to take some compression away, and you see it collapses right away. So if I'm a, a wet noodle and a very flexible person, and I have to carry 100 kilo in each hand, and I don't create a very stiff controlling girdle or guy wire system, my spine will buckle. And uh, we've done experiments to, to prove that. But how many strong men, and I've worked with people who compete in World's Strongest Man, you know, do you think they do sit-ups and spine mobility work? No. They, as you pointed out, they do stiffening exercise to get that flexible garden hose of a spine to bear tons of load. You know, if I stacked up five oranges and put a book on the top, it would fly apart. But if I put guy wires on all of those oranges, particularly on the end of toothpicks, this was experiments that I used to do with students. Those are called transverse processes, by the way, (laughs) with vertebra. They create stability and bigger moment arms, and uh, it's called Euler stiffness if you're an engineer. But that's the role of the abdominal muscles. So in the most mild form, Sanjeev, we might sniff to activate those muscles and create more robustness for load. We might go through to muscular bracing. We might go all the way through to valve salvo maneuvers. You know, the person who deadlifts a thousand pounds will suck up about 70 to 80% of tidal volume in their lungs. And then they compress down with their pecs and lats and they create a hydraulic pressurized cylinder to allow that spine to be now a rigid H-beam, I-beam. Wow. Anyway, 
do you see how we really have to have a good conversation now as to what we're trying to engineer in this person's body and the distribution of stability and mobility? And, and if I could take this one piece further now, we live in a linkage. This linkage with all of the joints, I'm going to ask you to wiggle your finger as fast as you can. Stiff, you, did you notice you had to stiffen your wrist? Because if you don't yeah. stiffen your wrist, you can't wiggle your finger as fast. So this is the law of the linkage. In order to create distal athleticism, you had to create proximal stability. If I want to create a punch, I'm going to train a offensive tackle now for the defensive, uh, for the offensive line in the NFL, and they're going to box out the uh, defensive players. If they train bench press, say a pushing exercise, the pec major, the bench press muscle, is a uniarticular muscle crossing the shoulder joint. Distal to that joint, it creates the arm flexion, which is the desired athleticism. But look what that same muscle does proximally. It attaches to the rib cage. It bends the rib cage. It's an energy leak. It's a performance <laughs> de-evolution, if you, if you want. Mm -hmm. So that same muscle on one side of the joint creates a desired action, and on the other side, it creates a collapse. So I engineer that out in the linkage with proximal stability. I lock my core. Now 100% of that bench press muscle gets expressed as distal athleticism. So now let's go to some of the world-class athletes. Take someone, well, I've measured some of the fighters who hit the hardest in this fight league, the UFC. The big, strong fellas with big muscles, you would be surprised in that they probably don't hit the hardest because they push their punches. It's, it's quite a slower motion versus the one who pulses muscles and they pulse and then relax to increase the closing velocity because strong muscles also have high stiffness. You have to let the muscle relax to let it go quickly. And then when they hit the contact point, they have a second pulse of muscle. So it's boom, boom. They hit you with their whole body as it turns to stone. And that characteristic of the muscle pulse is what is so important in this tuning of stability and mobility to create athleticism. Let's go to a running example. Do you think uh, Usain Bolt, everyone knows that as a name, yeah. do, do, do you think he did a lot of core stabilization work? You can look it up, his training programs sure. on YouTube. He had to, because yeah. without creating proximal stiffness, when the hip muscles explode, the desired athleticism is to propel the femur through the extensor range. But those same muscles also connect to the pelvis. And if those muscles aren't stiffened proximally, they just bend the spine. Oh, look out, I'm going to fire my glutes. And you just, oh, <laughs> every time he'd be doing this down the, the uh, sprint track. So you engineer out all that proximal motion, make it stiff to get 100% of the power transfer to the distal side of the ball and socket joint, which is the hip and the shoulder. So now it almost ties up our questions about hamstrings. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the, it's no coincidence that our core, our spine, has a ball and socket joint on either end, the only location in the body. But if we had ball and socket joints, you know, I have a, I have a spine here from a whale. And it's interesting, when you look at the mammals in the oceans, they have a ball and socket joint. 
in their in in the big tail that drives the flukes. There's the ball, and there's the socket. And but we don't have a ball and socket. We've evolved this stiffened disc. Could you imagine if we had ball and socket joints? The muscles we would have to have controlling those ball and sockets up our torso, but the spine with discs give a defined stiffness. The neutral zone and the final stiffness of each joint allows us to have a slender spine and be athletic. And Yeah, it occurs to me several years ago when I was doing martial arts in our black belt training, the instructor to break the boards, which were getting thicker and more complex, the teaching was never about the force with the hand. It was all about stability through the trunk, looseness, relaxation with the extremity until the very last moment with the rotation and, and then using the breath. And there were guys who were much bigger than me, stronger, much, who couldn't do it. And then there's people smaller than me, younger than me, kids who are accomplishing it with the same kind of mechanism. And I'm, I'm wondering, I'm sitting here thinking if it's a similar concept to what you're describing about how you generate the power through core stability to get that distal explosion. I never met Bruce Lee. I wish I did. His one-inch punch. Now, we did measure some accomplished athletes performing that, and it is exactly as you just described, Sanji. So you would take a contact on, say, a device to measure the impact, and then you stiffen the core, and it's just a hip turn. <laughs> That's what is the one-inch punch. Now, when you put motion, pivot off the rear foot, put motion in, and then boom, snap with the appropriate muscular pulse at the end. Now, all hell and fury is unleashed. It's no longer just, it's a one-inch punch plus. <laughs> but this is the hallmark of the great athletes. And again, I've measured so many of the great ones. And you know this, they don't test to be the strongest in the weight room or on the powerlifting platform. They are the ones who can muscular force. And when we measured the timing of those, in sometimes it was six times faster than the graduate students who were members of our laboratory could produce. Wow. Six times faster. This is what creates, and you know, yeah, I talked to some strength and conditioning coaches and I point out you know, with some graphical data, why this person is so great. Then I say, okay, how many of you are training the speed of muscle? Well, look, this has been incredibly informative and I want to be respectful of your time and energy, but I won't let you off the hook with a one last kind of question that I know you've been asked by and during numerous interviews, but it's worth asking again because it's such an important concept. John, would you agree that in your clinic, probably the most common mechanism from a history perspective for people who hurt their back is bending over of some type? Yes, sure. Yeah. So then that leads to the final kind of fact versus fiction. People with back pain should avoid flexion or bending when they're lifting. It depends. It's so context specific. If the person has this open fissure that creates a disc bulge to grow and pinch the nerve root when they flex for a period of time sitting or they're gardening and pulling weeds with that method and that causes their symptoms to elevate, the answer is perform a hip hinge, which every good American should know baseball, the shortstop posture, carry the weight 
down the arms, grab the knees hard, and watch some of the movements now. I'm going to tune my back. There's a flexed back. There's an extended back. I'm going to find the perfect resilience somewhere in the middle. And then I'm going to activate my lats and my pecs and watch. I'm going to pop up. I just drifted my shoulders down away from my arms. Now I can grab a bar and pull my hips through. So I'm not bending the knees to lift. I'm pulling my hips through, which is an entirely different coaching instruction. So I've bent over, but I didn't bend in a way that caused that open fissure to grow. I moved in a way to actually vacuum it in. So it was actual therapy. I might, that would be to pick up my child. If I drop my keys on the ground, I could sniff, turn this leg stiffened to my body into a baseball bat. I'm going to push the heel away. And over I go, pull my hip through. I bent over. I picked up the key off the floor. Did I flex? Well, I did. But I didn't cause the flexion stress on my back. So that open fissure disc bulge is consistent with the pattern of a person who trains at the gym with weights. The next client has never touched a weight. They are into yoga. They love flexibility. When you look at their discs, they're plump. They have lots of motion. When they bend forward, the compression side of the disc buckles because it's soft, it's compliant. And now they get a disc bulge anteriorly, not posteriorly. In other words, yeah. bending forward through their spine takes their disc bulge away off the nerve root. Yeah. So do you see how it depends? And it's so... Devils in the details. Yep. It, it, it is. And, you know, I know people get on the internet and criticize, oh, McGill, you, you don't like... Fly. I did a podcast with Martins Licious, who's the current world's strongest man, and uh, Aaron Porschig from Squat University. We did that about a month ago, and we went through the mechanics of the Atlas Stone lift. The Atlas Stone can be a 400-pound round ball of cement, and the athletes flex right over and pick up this 400-pound ball off the floor. And they'll say the, the, the chatter on the internet from people who have never measured these, these beasts who pick up these, these balls. And they say, well, they're flexing their backs and they don't break their backs. But again, the devil is in the details. The ball is between their feet. 400 pounds is less than half of their deadlift weight. So they're only picking up half of what they would normally pick up on a, uh, a barbell. And then they pull the bar into their laps and they curl their spine around the stone. So their spine and their stone becomes one. They do not have the hydraulic motion causing the delamination of the fibers. They just lock their spine in flexion. So that's, that, that, that's all right for most people. And another thing that people don't realize to get into some of the mechanics, Martins has double the moment arm of his back muscles than the three of us. Meaning that if you look at the line of action of the extensor muscles that extend and pull the spine up, his are double the distance. He's got double wow. the wrench handle. 
So if he picks up 400 pounds, you realize there's only half the load transferred from the muscles onto his back than me. Mm. He picks up 400 pounds with half the weight on his back because he's got double the moment arm of his muscles. So muscle hypertrophy plays a, a, a huge role in this. So, you know, I can, I can go on and on yeah. with the, the nuances of why the answer is it depends. And some people are confused over flexion. Well, flexion is a motion. It's a kinematic. But flexion is a torque. It's a kinetic. What kind of flexion are you talking about? So, you know, the, the golfer's lift and the shortstop squat, those are kinetic flexion lifts, but not kinematic. So there's a lot of nuances that we have to get through here, too. No, I, I appreciate yeah. that. Definitely wanted to give you space to comment on that. Yeah. Well, it's been terrific. Uh, this has been extremely informative and really love your passion and how you've dedicated your whole life towards really understanding what's happening. Like for myself... I've learned I need to do a better straight leg race. <laughs> I certainly don't have the level of detail that you described there when evaluating patients. And I know John is doing um, some of your training as well as we look to up-level our game when we take care of patients. Before I let you go, though, I always like to have my guests share a little bit about their daily routine, so to speak. I'm, I'm a bit of a health and wellness nut, so I always like to add things in and would love to hear just kind of how you keep yourself healthy, both mentally, physically, and enjoy your life. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that question, Sanjeev, for a lot of reasons. I left the university five years ago. Primarily, when I signed on to be a professor, almost the better part of 40 years ago, do you know computers weren't even invented? We didn't even have a computer in the lab 40 years ago. Everything was done on strip chart recorders and analog devices, et cetera. And then computers took over. And then towards the end, students would say, oh, well, can't I meet you on a virtual meeting on the computer for office hours? Do I actually have to you know, get my body down to your office? And you know how I teach. I teach right. with my hands and getting them to feel it. And you know, let's go to a patient table and I'm, we're, we're going to workshop this. And uh, I, I couldn't stand it. And my health was in decline sitting at a computer. So I said, I'm, I'm done now. And uh, I retired. And now I moved three hours north of the, the university so I can get a decent winter. And uh, I'm healthier now than I've been since I was in my 20s. And I live what I call the biblical week. So here it is. There's seven days in a week. And by the way, this is the foundation of the teachings of every single major religion, and that's why I call it the biblical week. I do physical labor. I heat with wood. I chop my own firewood. So there, the shovel snow, all of these things are built into my daily routine. But two days a week, I do dedicated strength and power training. Two days a week, I've had a lot of injuries. I've broken my neck. I've fractured ribs. Uh, really had some substantial and broken my hip. Wow. In any case, I have to do some mobility. When I was 30, I didn't need any mobility. God gave it to me, but now I need strategic mobility. So two days a week, I'm very strategic. I work on things that are a little bit stuck, my rib cage, my neck, uh, my hips, et cetera. Two days a week, I work on cardiovascular, my, my ticker. So if I chop firewood, I just accomplished all three. So I get a free sure. day. I, uh, 
Uh, but yeah. if I don't, I will either I'll go for a swim or a bike ride or a ski. I'll be in the clinic here and I'll do some mobility work or some strength work if I haven't had that in. But the magic of it all and the way to stay pain-free is one day a week is rest. Don't do anything. Mm. That's the day that your body adapts. So all the stimulation that you've done all week long, now let it adapt. And uh, the other thing too is, say I am uh, doing a heavy day on the chainsaw. I don't do two days in a row. And I it, then it's training. Or I, I'm a passionate snowmobiler. I never do two days in a row. So I feel fabulous. Anyway, the other thing is, it's funny, people talk about weight and diets. I have a weight and I weigh myself once a week and my target is 180 pounds. If I'm under 180, I can drink all the beer I want. I can eat chocolate. I can do whatever I like. If I'm 181, I don't do any of that. And so what's my diet? Never cross 180. That's great. I thank you for sharing that, you know, a bit of almost like a personal side to yourself about, about your routine and your rest day. And you know, I've shared with my listeners, I just graduated from the uh, Andrew Weil Integrative Medicine uh, two-year fellowship program. Oh, nice. And we talk, about, we talk about the importance of kind of mind, body, and soul. And one other thing I would add, just listening to you, you have a unique sense of humor, which I think really comes across interactions. Um, terrific teacher. I can imagine being a student in the lab with you, and I'm sure John as well appreciates that, and we can recognize that and honor that. So I want to thank you for your contributions to the spine field. Uh, those of us who are really down in the trenches, we lean on that type of research to help us improve the quality of life for our patients and, frankly, for ourselves. So, John, anything you want to add for him before we let him get out of here and probably do something more important than talk to us? Yeah, I just wanted to ask more on a, on a lighter note. Um, with regards to your mustache, have you ever gone full handlebar or, or Fu Manchu? Or, uh, <laughs> I mean, we, we, we have to have a little bit of fun, right? Humor. Yeah, if, if you know what the logo for our company is, it's the, uh, <laughs> the, the mustache and glasses. And I shave my, my daughter who's almost 30 now, but she would be maybe uh, seven or eight years old. She said, dad, and I've always had either a beard or some kind of facial hair. I never shaved. And she said, dad, I've never seen you without a mustache. So I shaved it and it was awful. Uh, I walked by the president of the university. He didn't know me. I mean, I've known this guy. For, I see him every day. People didn't know who I was. And then they would pick me up at the airport to do a, uh, you know, a lecture or something. And they'd say, well, just some graduate student will say, well, we were just told to look for the mustache and you'll know it when you see it. You know, this was before the internet. And uh, anyway, so I have to have the mustache for the logo. And I, yes, I have shaved a beard and left a big, long, straggly handlebar, but I can tell you it's pure wife repellent and I can only hold out a, a week or so. So yeah. I have to behave. <laughs> Uh, thanks for sharing that. And thank, thank you. This has been truly a privilege. It's w women don't find this particularly attractive. Uh, I can tell you that. <laughs> you notice we're both clean shaven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. No, it's been a, it's been an honor. Thank you for your time, um, and I hope we can, in some manner, stay in touch. And when you're in the Carolinas, you definitely look us up and love to host you, um, introduce you to people in our group, and really give you more exposure for your teachings and, and the contributions that you've made. So thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it, Stu. 
Well, Sanjeev and uh, John, thank you so much for your support of uh, what we do and uh, your passion in uh, getting this out to uh, helping the people who deserve it so much. Yeah, and we'll definitely link to your uh, company's website, uh, some of the books that you have and uh, educational materials for people. And uh, please send me if you have any other contact information that you're comfortable putting in the show notes and things. We'll definitely add that for people to uh, reach out if they want to get hold of you. Yeah, the best thing is the backfitpro.com website. And by the way, if we have patients who are unable to get to you in the Carolinas, uh, we do have a network of clinicians who are listed on our website. And uh, I hope to see uh, one or both of you on that uh, distant future. And then the website will feed some patients to you as well. Terrific. All right, guys, I will, I will let you go. And uh, thank you both for your time today and blessings for a great uh, rest of the week for both of you. And same to you. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Back Talk Doc, brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates with offices in North and South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Lockia and treatment options for back issues, go to backtalkdoc.com. We look forward to having you join us for more insights about back pain and spine health on the next episode of Back Talk Doc. Additional information is also available at carolinaneurosurgery.com. <laughs>